All right, this is lesson number one on the gift of tongues. And we're calling this lesson the doctrine of baptisms and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In teaching on this subject of the gift of tongues, you got to back up and lay the, the broad foundation of, of what is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And in talking about the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you can't go any further back than to talk about the doctrine of baptisms. As Hebrews 6 calls one of the principal doctrines of Christ, one of those principal doctrines is the doctrine of baptisms. It's plural, which means there's more than one baptism for the New Testament believer. There's more than one baptism in the principal doctrine of Christ. A lot of churches, uh, particularly some denominations, they get hung up on one baptism, not realizing the Bible teaches a multitude of baptisms. So this lesson is going to cover those baptisms. I'm going to jump in here because this is a four-page curriculum, so we have lots to cover. Many of Jesus' lessons were designed to prepare his disciples for the coming church age. These lessons weren't just limited to church discipline or evangelism or ministering the word, but they also included teachings on a brand new batch of spiritual experiences that would define the church age. And among these is the doctrine of baptisms. When Jesus was, he was a master, he was a, he was a, a discipler. And so in teaching his ministers, he wasn't just focusing on how to preach the word like Mark chapter four talks about. He wasn't just talking about church discipline and how to go to someone who's offended you like Matthew 18. He was also preparing them for this new batch of things God was going to do in the earth. Uh, we know he was transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant and things were going to be changing up. Many times Jesus would say, you've heard it was written, but I say unto you. And so he was segueing from the Mosaic law into the perfect law of liberty. And so with that, we can see him beginning to prepare the way as a transitional vessel for the New Testament church, which is us, our, we are his body. And so part of these, this new batch of spiritual experiences is the doctrine of baptisms. And every baptism God offers is supernatural. Some of them involve natural elements, but it's all supernatural because it's God. And God is supernatural. These lessons will look at the four types of baptisms found in the New Testament. So we're going to look at that. That's the main thrust of this lesson. Our first, first we want to look at what is baptism. And this is very critical to understand, not just for this set of lessons, but also in dealing with other Christians. When you look at the word baptism, it's the Greek word baptizo, and it means to submerge as to dye a garment, to place into or to immerse. So, so very, there from the very beginning, the word baptism means to submerge. When other denominations and other parts of the body of Christ, when they want to sprinkle, they are in violation of the Greek definition. I don't, I don't know the origins of sprinkling or infant baptism or infant sprinkling, but it's not proper or it's not biblical. So, and you don't have to argue with those folks over that. You can say, look, just go to the Greek term, Baptizo, and you'll find it means to submerge. If we're talking about dyeing a garment, you have to submerge a garment to dye it. You have to change its colors through and through. I don't know where the sprinkling comes from, but a lot of mainstream, even evangelical denominations believe in sprinkling. It implies a permanent change as a result of this immersion. When you dye a garment, you can't ever dye it back. It's so, it gets into every fiber, every thread, it changes the whole, sometimes the whole texture of it, changes obviously the whole color of it. And the longer it stays in there, the more it is lining up with that color you're dying it into. Baptism is strictly a New Testament rite initiated by John the Baptist and continued today by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, 
and men. Think about that. You don't find any baptism in the entire Old Testament. You'll find uh, Levitical ceremonial washings, sure, but that's not baptism. You'll find Naaman the leper dipping three times, excuse me, seven times in the River Jordan, but that's not baptism. That's just dipping. It's not even called baptism. You only find baptism in the New Testament and specifically with John. John the Baptist is the one who started. He was called John the Baptist, not because he was part of the Southern Baptist Convention, but because he was a baptizer. He had begun this new thing of emerging people. And so that's where this whole doctrine kicks off. We call this first baptism. Again, there's four baptisms for the New Testament believer. This first one is called John's baptism or the baptism of repentance. So John the Baptist, so-called because baptism was a critical part of his message, was a prophet who came as a forerunner before Jesus Christ. He was the prophet, the forerunner that Malachi prophesied about. John was actually Jesus' second cousin. His mother was Elizabeth, the cousin of Mary, Jesus' mother. He was only about six months older than Jesus, and his job was to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry. So you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And it says, And many of the children of Israel shall be turned unto the Lord their God, and he shall go before Jesus, that is John. Uh, this is a prophecy over Elizabeth. In the spirit and power of Elijah. And so we know Jesus said, Elijah has already come. And they said, well, who? And he was referring to John the Baptist. Uh, he wasn't Elijah, but he came in the spirit and the power. What is the spirit and power of Elijah? The ability to cause a nation to repent. That's what Elijah's ministry was all about. He had the showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Ashtaroth were a no-show. They were Jezebel's prophets. They were back at Jezreel. And, and Elijah's anointing and his, his manifestation of office was in causing Israel to turn back to their God. Remember, he said, if, how long will you be hot or lame between two opinions? You know, when you're double-minded, you're lame, hot, crippled. He said, if God be God, then serve God. But if Baal be God, then serve Baal. And so the, the key marker in Elijah's ministry was revival or turning Israel back to God. That's what John the Baptist did. That's why he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, see, the Lord was going to come right after John. And so he was baptizing them, telling them, bring forth fruit that has proven you've repented. Don't just get dunked. Don't just come to church and cry at the altar. Actually change your lifestyle. Luke 1, and 77 says, And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. And so this was John's ministry. And the thing that defined him was the baptism. Now, the baptism was an indicator. It was an act of faith and an act of um, penitence and something they could act on after they'd heard the message. John was not a soft preacher. He called out to them, you hypocrites, who has warned you of the judgment to come? He was a very hard preacher and the folks loved him. And when he was done preaching, he would say, now, basically, uh, now, if you believe in this, if you're ready for this, come and let me baptize you. So it was an act of their faith to go down into the river and commit openly in front of a multitude of congregants that they believed this prophet and that they were preparing themselves for the coming of their Messiah. It was mass, it was, it was mass revival. The ministry of John the Baptist had been foretold 400 years before by the prophet Malachi. And Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I will send my messenger. 
He shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. So John's message was very simple. Repent and turn from your sins because the Savior is coming. And he, he was anointed. The Spirit of God was upon him. Uh, it had to be the Spirit of God to draw people to this crazy guy. Uh, he, was, he was known as an unusual prophet because he wore animal skins. He was very woolly. He lived in the wilderness. He did not live in king's palaces. He was not a friend of the king's. He was not a politically minded uh, prophet like some of them were. He stood out in the wilderness. He called people away from their comfort. He called people away from the convenience of Jerusalem and the fortified cities. And they went. He didn't take his message into town. He was a voice crying in the wilderness. And so that was to prove how much do you really believe in God? How much do you really want him? And the Bible says, and all of Israel went out to see him. They didn't go into their comfort zone. They didn't go into their plush little amphitheaters. They didn't go into their comfortable little synagogues. They went out into the wilderness, to the outskirts of Israel, to the dirty river Jordan, to be dunked and baptized in a dirty river. And they did it because it was God. Malachi, uh, excuse me, Matthew 3, 1 and 2 says, And those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I, I really would wish to God and pray that the Lord raise up more preachers that their message would be repent. And none of this fluffy, God's going to be good to you, you're going to have your best day ever, and, and all this fake, pseudo-prophesied fake peace when there be no peace. John the Baptist was anointed in the spirit and power of Elijah, and his first message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3 says, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea, that's a huge region, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. I don't know what that looked like. Maybe they went down to the river, and before he baptized them, they said, I'm an adulterer, I'm an extortioner, I'm a liar, I, I, I hit my wife, I've cheated on my husband, I lied to my mom. I don't know what it looks like, but they confessed their sins. And this thing went on for a long time because that's a big bunch of people. This would have been all-day services. If, you, if you've made that trek, you're not going to turn around if you get bored. You're kind of there to stay. The unique sign of his ministry was how the people responded to his message. They were baptized by him in the River Jordan. This act of being submerged in water was a public testimony of the people's desire to turn from their wickedness and return to the living God. This act of baptism represented a death to sin and a resurrection to start a new life. It was the beginning of what John called bringing forth fruit that proves you have repented. As a pastor, I watch Christians, they've come to the altar, they've been born again, but I still don't, maybe even baptized, I still don't see fruit that proves they repented of their own way of life. Now maybe in a season they did repent and they produced better fruit, but your fruit can wither on the vine. Your fruit can fall to the ground and you can begin to produce bad fruit. You got to judge yourself constantly as a Christian. Are you living cleaner than you've ever lived or have you become more sensual? Have you become more carnal? If we walk with Jesus Christ, we ought to be becoming more and more clean, more and more spiritual. We have to judge ourselves on this. Jesus submitted to John's baptism to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus indicated this is God. This is the revival of God. This is the spirit of God. And I endorse it because I am God. And I prove to you that I endorse it. John, you must baptize me. You must submerge me. 
Now, I don't know if they didn't recognize each other. I'm sure Jesus recognized his cousin or, or maybe John didn't recognize him. Maybe they'd been apart. We don't know. We do know they were cousins. And maybe they were both just spiritual enough to realize what God was doing through John the Baptist. I, I don't know. John's baptism was to prepare the way for Christ and consequently uh, became obsolete after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the advent of the church. So John's job was to prepare people for Jesus. In his ministry, he was still baptizing people until Herod arrested him and beheaded him. And even after uh, the resurrection of Christ, people were still baptizing in the name of John and the disciples and the apostles were having to straighten that thing out. We know that officially, spiritually, John's baptism came to an end at the advent of the church in Acts chapter 2. And from that point, they were being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, not in the name of John for the remission of sins or for the, uh, for the bringing forth of fruit that proves you've repented. This brings us to our second baptism. And now again, the first baptism no longer applies to the New Testament church, but this is the doctrine of baptisms. So this brings us to our second baptism, which actually is the most critical of all baptisms, period. And that is baptism into the body of Christ. Uh, the new birth is called by several different names in the Gospels and the Epistles. That's what we're talking about, the new birth, being born again. But this is also called the baptism into the body of Christ. So we're going to look at some passages here that indicate some other names for the baptism into the body of Christ. Number one, it's called being born of the Spirit. John chapter 3, Nicodemus' household. He said, you must be born of the Spirit. It's also called being born again. John chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus said, you must be born again. First uh, Peter 1 says, uh, being born again, not of corruptible word, excuse me, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible of the word of God that lives and abides forever. It's called, called being baptized into the body of Christ. First Corinthians 12, 13 says, by one spirit, we've all been baptized into the body of Christ. It's called being baptized into Jesus Christ. Romans 6 even though Romans 6 is a famous passage used for water baptism, Romans chapter 6 does not talk at all about water. It talks about being baptized into Christ. Also uh, quoted in Galatians 3. It's called being saved. Thank God. That's, that's just the best overall general term. I've been saved. And Romans 10 says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. What happens when you do that? You're baptized into the body of Christ. It's also called being a new creature in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So we see six terms there that are all referring to the same event. And they help paint a picture of what's going on spiritually. You're being born of the Spirit. You're being born again. You're being baptized into the body of Christ. You're being baptized into Jesus Christ. You're being saved. This whole process saves you. You're being made a new creature. That's the same thing as the new birth. But when you're born again, what comes forth is a brand new creature. It's not something like the old thing. It's something that's never before existed. When we call on the name of Jesus for salvation, the Holy Spirit takes us and baptizes and submerges us into the body of Christ, causing us to be born again, thus making us new creatures in Christ. This is called being saved. This also refers, uh, is also referred to as being joined to the Lord as one spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is a supernatural event that can only be outwardly observed by the spiritual fruit it bears in a believer's life. This is the baptism referred to in Romans chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 says, There was one faith, one hope, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That one baptism is the most critical. 
It's not talking about water baptism. It's not talking about baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's talking about baptism into Christ, the very thing that saves us. Colossians chapter 2 and 1 Peter 3.21. And so this is what we're talking about, being joined to the Lord as one spirit. That's pretty cool to think about when you get born again and you call in the name of Jesus. We're all made one spirit. We partake of Christ. We're born of the same spirit. If you're born again, whether you're black, white, yellow, red, polka dotted, we're one spirit because we're born again of the same spirit. And the only only sign that this has happened is that the spirit of God begins to produce new fruit in your life. You can sometimes see people cry, but you can see them cry at funerals. You can see them cry when they lose a football championship. So crying isn't necessarily the best indicator. It's the fruit of the spirit. If you're not bearing the fruit of the spirit, I've got to ask why and when will you start? And sometimes you even have to ask, are you even born again? It's often heard among Christians, you know, I'm not one to judge uh, their, 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 their salvation, but, you know, if they're born again, you can't tell it. Well, you ought to be able to tell if somebody's born again. We're not trying to live with both feet, one feet in each side of the, the spirit realm, one in the spirit of God, one in the spirit of the world. We want to be all in God bearing this fruit. So water baptism or believer's baptism is the baptism into the body of Christ. This is the most critical of all baptisms. Without this one, you go to hell. And so this baptism, the baptism into the body of Christ, this is being born again. This is the one that we must preach above all else, though we've got to preach all the other baptisms. This is the critical one. This is the one baptism Ephesians 4 is emphatic about. All right? That brings us to the next baptism, what we call water baptism or believer's baptism. This is called the believer's baptism to distinguish it from John's baptism because they both involve water. And if they both involve water, how do we distinguish the two? Well, one's for the New Testament believer, the born again believer. One was for those being prepared for the coming of Jesus. Well, Jesus has already come. He's already died on the cross, been resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now we're born again. This is a believer's baptism. This baptism is a critical part of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 gives us that great commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. All right, so we see baptism there. We baptize in the name of the Father. We baptize in the name of the Son. We baptize in the name of the Holy Ghost. You get the whole Trinity involved in this water baptism. The whole Trinity was involved when you got born again. The Holy Spirit was drawing you. Uh, well, actually, the Lord God Almighty was. He gave of His Son. You believed on His Son, and the Holy Spirit took you when you believed on His Son and baptized you into the body of Christ. And here in the water baptism, we see the whole Trinity involved again. We're baptizing you in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mark 16, 16 gives us further confirmation of water baptism being a critical part of the Great Commission. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. Well, why the people make the argument, see, you got to be water baptized to be saved. Well, we already saw that being baptized into the body of Christ makes you a new creature. Adding water to it doesn't make you any newer. But why would you not be baptized? If you believed and if the gospel is really preached to you, you would also follow in believer's baptism. Know what sends you to hell is the next part of this verse. He that believeth not shall be damned. Not he that is baptized not, not he that is not submerged, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Acts 2.38, Peter preaching the Great Commission, following through with the words of his Savior. Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
So there we see the great commission in act. He's preaching the gospel to them. He's commanding them to repent. That means to turn their lifestyle, turn from their wicked ways and follow Jesus and be water baptized. Critical part of it. We have a bunch of other verses that further confirm this passage on water baptism being part of the great commission and the believer's baptism. Water baptism can be observed outwardly. It is an outward demonstration of what has happened in the new birth. It is an outward testimony of an inward faith in Jesus Christ. We are baptized in Jesus Christ and the name of Jesus for the cancellation and the remission of sins, not the permission to sin. All right. So we've covered three baptisms so far. We've got John's baptism, which was to prepare the way and get Israel ready for their coming Messiah, who was just really on the heels of John. They were about the same age. If they're six months apart, think about this. John's baptism, John's ministry started when he was in his late 20s and right at the age of 30. We know Jesus started his ministry at the age of 30, and he was only six months younger than John. Think about how young these men were bringing about the sovereign hand of God and the revival God had prophesied about for thousands of years. These men were in their late 20s, early 30s. I don't get it in this day and age. You got these knuckleheads that want to follow these old people. And, and I don't, nothing against old people. Uh, nothing against, we need the senior saints. So please don't misunderstand me. I have fathers in the faith. We need them. I'm not of this generation that says the old folks don't need anything. But I want to encourage folks that Jesus was 30 when he started preaching. John the Baptist was 30 when he started preaching. Joseph was 30 when he became Pharaoh. David was 30 when he became king. Uh, now, I think there's an age where you're too young to lead the masses because you don't have any experience. But at the same time, there's older folks that won't follow younger people because they're not old enough. You don't have to be a member of AARP to be a leader in God's kingdom. You got to start where you're at. You could lead five-year-olds on the playground to Christ if you wanted to. So I just want to observe that, that the, these men were young when they started this thing, but they had a heart and a zeal and a strength for God. So we have John's baptism. Then that brings us to the most critical of the New Testament baptisms. That is the baptism into the body of Christ or the baptism into Jesus. That is a work done by the Holy Spirit. Then that brings us to believer's baptism or water baptism for the remission of sins and as a public testimony. Then that brings us to this third baptism or the fourth in the New Testament, but only three for the born again believer. Hopefully that doesn't confuse you. Four New Testament baptisms beginning with John. But John's baptism ceased and came to pass and was completed at the resurrection of Christ. Three of the, the four are only for the New Testament believer. The three are baptism in the body of Christ, water baptism, and baptism in the Holy Ghost and fire. That brings us to this baptism in the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was the first to prophesy about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. His message of repentance and water baptism always made mention of the baptism Jesus would bring about, the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. Now think about how cool that is. He's preaching water baptism. He's preaching repentance. And then he'd always say, there's one who's coming because he's always pointing to Jesus. There's one who's coming, who's coming, whose shoes I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you in the Holy Ghost and fire. Think about that. I'm baptizing you in water. But there's one coming with fire. So even in the days of John the Baptist, this baptism in the Holy Ghost and fire was being prophesied about. It didn't come to pass for three and a half years. It didn't happen to the day of Pentecost. But he was still talking about it, preparing Israel for a new set of spiritual experiences. 
Uh, Matthew 3, 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, baptizing you with the Holy Ghost is not baptizing you with water. Baptizing you with the Holy Ghost is not baptizing you into the body of Christ. This is Christ. Baptizing you with the Holy Ghost is you being submerged into the Holy Ghost and fire. And when you're submerged in the Holy Ghost and fire, something changes. Other verses that say the same thing are Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, and John 1.33. Jesus Christ spoke numerous times about the baptism of the Holy Spirit during his earthly ministry. So we see Jesus preaching this thing. We see Jesus uh, foretelling it and Jesus talking about it to prepare his disciples, to get them hungry for it. Uh, you know, the, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You don't know you want something till you start to hear about it. Uh, I'm ashamed to think many American Christians have avoided this subject or refused to study it because of a past religious bias. If, Jesus, if John prophesied about it, if Jesus talked about it, and if it happened in the book of Acts, we ought to be looking into it more deeply. Amen. So let's look at some examples of Jesus talking about it. John chapter 7. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So we see here that he's talking about on this great day of the feast. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the last day, the eighth day. This is the water ceremony. They're pouring out water. And he cries out with this loud voice. And he says, if you're thirsty, come to me. And out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. Rivers. But this, he said, he signified the Holy Ghost. But this hadn't happened yet because Jesus had not been glorified or resurrected or ascended. So even here in John 7, now John is over 20 verses long. So this is the first third or so of his ministry. Even as early as the first year of his ministry, he's already talking about being baptized in the Holy Ghost and having rivers flow out of you. That's pretty neat. Acts 1, 5, right before his ascension, Jesus said, And John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Notice Jesus talking about two different baptisms again. John's baptism, yes. We know that right before this, he talked about baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So there's water baptism. And here he's talking about baptism in the Holy Ghost. When you really break it down and you start to study all the baptisms, it's so easy to distinguish the four baptisms. And if, if we know that John's is done away with because the disciples taught it so, Apollos only knew John's baptism, and Aquila and Priscilla had to come unto him and expound to him the doctrine of Christ more clearly. Uh, and if, if Paul had to address John's baptism in Acts 19 and baptize him in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, then we know that that baptism, John's baptism, is done away with or fulfilled, resolved, passed away. But the disciples never said, the epistles have never said that the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire is done away with. We know water baptism has never been done away with because the Bible doesn't tell us it's been done away with. We know the baptism in the body of Christ isn't done away with because the Bible doesn't tell us it's ever stopped. So why would we believe the baptism of the Holy Ghost has been done away with when it still flows in the same line of thinking, the same logic? If the Bible doesn't teach us it's past, it isn't past. It's still present. It's very easy to hermeneutically break this down if you're willing to look at it with a halfway intelligent mind. 
All right. Peter recalls this promise of the baptism of the Holy Ghost when the Gentiles interrupt his sermon by speaking in tongues. I mean, well, that's got to bum a preacher out. You're doing so good preaching the gospel. And all of a sudden, a bunch of Gentiles just start speaking in tongues, which was a sign the Holy Ghost had fallen upon them. Acts 11, as Peter is recounting in, uh, this experience at Cornelius' household to the, the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem, uh, and he's talking about how he went there to preach to them. And he had a vision of the angel and went to Cornelius' household. And he says, as I was preaching, here we go, pick it up in verse 16. And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Notice one of the evidences of being baptized in the Holy Ghost is that you speak in tongues. These folks interrupt Peter's message by simultaneously, spontaneously praying in tongues. And Peter says, this was what the Lord had talked about, being baptized in the Holy Ghost. So here, as far as Acts 11, people are still being baptized in the Holy Ghost. Peter addressed the baptism of the Holy Spirit in his tremendous sermon at Pentecost. He called it receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 2.38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So here we have another example, another terminology being applied to it. In one of our future lessons, we'll look at all the different names the Bible calls the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's called receiving the gift of the Spirit. It's called being Spirit-filled. It's called the outpouring of the Spirit. It's called the gift of the Spirit. It's called being baptized in the Holy Ghost. It's called a lot of different things, and we'll look at that. Here, Peter says, as he's preaching at, uh, at the Pentecost, we see the three baptisms in operation. Repent. Well, repentance, would, that would be equivalent of being born again. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. There's your water baptism. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There's the baptism in the Holy Ghost. Here, Peter was preaching the three New Testament baptisms. Repent, baptism into the body, water baptism, and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is all throughout the book of Acts, and it's very critical for us to understand it. Even more critical, as I'll reiterate again, Hebrews 6 tells us about the principal doctrines of Christ. There's six of them. One of those six is the doctrine of baptisms. Most churches that I have been affiliated with or been a part of, denominational churches, they don't even have a clue about the doctrine of baptisms. And so my heart breaks to think about the body of Christ having weak doctrine, you can't get any more basic than Paul telling you in the book of Hebrews, there are six principles to the doctrines of Christ. That would be a good place to start in your Christian walk, understanding the six principal doctrines of Christ. And then you jump in there and you see it very critically, very clearly. One of them is the doctrine of baptisms, plural. Why would we not search the scriptures to understand the plurality of baptisms? Most folks, if you ask them about baptism, their mind instantly thinks water. But it's the same Greek word, baptizo. It's the same word to talk about John's baptizo, the baptizo into the body of Christ, the baptizo into water for the remission of sins, and the baptizo into the Holy Ghost and fire. Uh, you can tell how improperly trained we are doctrinally when I say baptism and everybody thinks water. Because water doesn't save and neither does the Holy Ghost and fire. It's only baptizo into the body of Christ that saves you from hell. But the other three are just as critical. So we've got to critically study this over and over and over again. 
I find it fascinating that here in Acts 2.38, you'd see all three baptizos in one verse, in one sermon. I don't know why we thought we were better than the apostles and we quit preaching all three baptizos or baptisms, but we've done it. We see this again at the Samaritan revival in Acts 8. Verses 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles were, which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, that would be salvation. They sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he, the Holy Ghost, was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Here again we see the three New Testament baptisms. The Samaritans had received the word of God. That would be salvation, baptism into the body of Christ. And had been water baptized, but they had not received the Holy Ghost yet. So you see it so, so beautifully here. Jerusalem here is at Samaria through the preaching of Philip the evangelist. They've received the word of the Lord. They've received Jesus Christ. So they send Peter and John, two big hitters, two big apostles, to go down there and follow up. You know, evangelists aren't very good on follow-up. Evangelists are good at one thing, salvation. Uh, just the basic gospel message and signs and wonders. But then you got to send somebody in to disciple them and to check up on them and teach them about the local church because evangelists, that's just not their thing, unfortunately. You see that here. We know Philip was very clearly an evangelist. you got to go send some, uh, some pastors, some apostles, Peter and John, to go do evangelistic follow-up. We still see that today. Billy Graham, great evangelist, he would work with all the local pastors to make sure all those thousands of souls that got saved at his conferences would be followed up and be put into local churches. So Peter and John go down there for some post-evangelistic crusade follow-up, and they're all baptized in the name of Jesus, water baptized, it says very clearly. Only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they, they wanted to see if they had the Holy Ghost yet, and they hadn't received the Holy Ghost yet. But when they laid hands on them, they did. Thank God for all three baptisms. Thank God that we got a verse here that shows all three of them once again working in the lives of the believers. Micro, uh, Paul's micro-revival at Ephesus experienced the three New Testament baptisms, though all four baptisms are mentioned in this passage. Really cool passage. I'm so glad the Holy Ghost put this in our scriptures. It helps us to build doctrine. Acts 19, 2 through 6, and Paul said unto the disciples. Now, what does it take to be a disciple? Oh, you got to continue in God's word. You've got to know the word. The word will set you free. Take up your cross, follow him. These guys are born again. These are disciples. These are followers of Jesus Christ. This is Acts 19. This is some 15 or 20 years after uh, the resurrection of Christ. So these guys are born again. So he says unto the disciples, not the heathen. The disciples, so they're born again. That's the baptism into the body of Christ. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Uh, so have you been baptized in the Holy Ghost? Because we know that when you get born again, you receive the Holy Spirit. He lives on the inside of you. But we already see a distinction between being born again and receiving the Holy Ghost. He didn't ask them, have you received Jesus? He's asking them, have you received the Holy Ghost? Since you believed. Believed in who? Jesus. So you mean believing in Jesus isn't enough to get you the fullness of the Holy Ghost? Apparently not, according to the great apostle Paul. And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Well, I'll let you know you can be born again and not even know how it works. You can call on Jesus and not even know about the third member of the Godhead. 
Remember, Acts 10 says you just have to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and call on his name to be saved. You don't have to understand the Trinity. You don't have to understand how they all three work together for our benefit. You just have to believe that God sent his son Jesus to die for you. They said, we don't even know there was a Holy Ghost. Can you imagine preaching to Christians and they've never even heard of the Holy Spirit? And Paul said unto them, unto them, what were you baptized? All right. Well, then what did you get baptized with? And they said, unto John's baptism. So these guys are born again believers, but they only know John's baptism. Then said Paul, well, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come on after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they changed up baptisms. They, they lay aside John's baptism for baptism in the name of Jesus, water baptism. Same, same water, same principle, just a different name. So they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, okay, now stop. They're born again. Because you don't dare baptize somebody in the name of Jesus until they've been born again. Paul was an expert preacher. He's not going to go baptize heathen in water because it doesn't do you any good. So we can, we can already ascertain they're born again. They've been baptized in the body of Christ. They are now have been taught accurately about water baptisms and the difference between John's and the one in the name of the Lord Jesus based on the Great Commission. So they follow up and they get that baptism. So now we're born again, baptized in the body of Christ. We're water baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of sins. And now what happens? And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. They get the third baptism. Baptism into the body, baptism into water, baptism in the Holy Ghost. It's so awesome. You see it right, right there, all three of them together. This is our third example of this. Peter on the day of Pentecost, Peter and John at Samaria, and here Jesus at Ephesus. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. We see this pattern repeated three times. All three baptisms taught and preached to the perfection of God in the believer's life. These were disciples already baptized in the body of Christ who only knew John's baptism. But after Paul instructs them, they experience two new baptisms, water baptism in Jesus name and the baptism in the Holy Spirit. These three baptisms are still active and available to us today. And I would ask the question, are, are you missing any of them? I was born again a Baptist, water baptized a Baptist at the age of eight back in 1984. And it took me 11 years till I found out about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And honestly, when I found out, I got mad because it came upon me. It changed my life. And I got mad. I said, why did nobody ever tell me about this? Why has no one ever revealed this? Why am I 19 and just now getting this thing when it was in the Bible all along? But I want to point out with the few minutes we have remaining that some Christians turn a, a selective, purposeful, blind eye to the things they don't understand. Rather than being hungry for God and searching the scriptures to further understand what they don't understand, they would rather remain in the blissfulness of ignorance. The only problem is ignorance is not bliss. It's destructive. If the Bible talks about this, and we're going to look at this in the next seven weeks, all these scriptures that talk about the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the gift of tongues, the movings of the Spirit. If the Bible talks about this over and over and over again, we would be absolute spiritual fools to not study them and ask the Lord to enlighten our understanding. One of the statistics I've researched out is how many times baptism 
is talked about, water baptism for the believer, how many times communion is talked about, and how many times tongues is talked about, and how many of those are strong doctrines in every church, and how, which of those is the weak doctrine. Because if you got scripture for it, you have no reason to denounce it, except for just scriptural bigotry. Maybe we'll coin a new term, scriptural bigotry. We are purposely bigoted against things you don't understand. We're going to have to search the scriptures for in them we find eternal life and we find our success. Amen. Love you guys. Pray for us. I'm going to pray for us as we close this service out now. Father, I thank you for this wonderful class. Thank you for Sunday school. Bless the understanding of these saints. May these lessons and these scriptures come alive to us. May we understand in a greater depth the baptism of the Holy Ghost and all the baptisms for the New Testament believer. Father, may these lessons continue to affect and help the lives of the believers for years to come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless.